Psalm 50. God himself is judge. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the God Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statuses or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Father, we would ask that as we attend now to your word, that you would once again, by your spirit, speak to us, your people, your children. Lord, we want to hear from you today. We want to engage with you today. We want you to continue ministering to us and molding and forming us into the people you've called us to be. Because, Lord, we know that's where true happiness comes from, where true joy comes from. It's from knowing you and growing and becoming more and more like Christ. And so, Lord, we trust and we believe that your word is true and that your word is wise and that your word is good. And that your word is not burdensome. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make plain to us this psalm and its meaning. And that you would stir up in our hearts today love, devotion, and faith in you. So Lord, minister to us now, we would pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So we're here turning now to Psalm chapter 50 for this morning's sermon because obviously this week is Thanksgiving. And so I wanted to uh, just preach a topical message this week about gratitude or Thanksgiving to kind of prepare our hearts 
and our minds for the week to come. Uh, Last week, obviously, we finished the book of Ruth. And so uh, before we move into uh, kind of our next teaching segment in our church, we thought it would be appropriate, again, to just pause and meditate this morning on this theme of thanksgiving or gratitude. Just to give you a heads up, next week marks the beginning of the Advent season. And there are four Sundays in Advent that lead up to Christmas. Advent just simply means the arrival or the coming. And so Advent season is where we reflect on the coming of Christ that took place 2,000 years ago. And simultaneously, the coming of Christ that is imminent in the future when Jesus returns and sets everything in the world that is wrong right. And so we are going to focus in on Uh, Advent for the next four Sundays. And what we're going to do in the sermons is we're going to be teaching on the various themes of Advent. And so each Sunday, we're going to just zero in on on a theme of Advent and kind of unpack that in our teaching series, which then means that when the new year starts, we'll be getting back into our next book of the Bible. And so I want to just give you a heads up on that. Beginning of January, we're going to move into the book of Psalms. And we're going to be studying the book of Psalms together in 2021, which is kind of the devotional book of God's people. It's the song book, the prayer book of God's people. And so we're going to study the book of Psalms together, which many believers look at the book of Psalms as one of their favorite books in the Bible. So we're so excited to study the book of Psalms together. Uh, You might not know this, but the book of Psalms, which is 150 chapters long, is actually the compilation of five smaller books. So it's five books that are put together. And what we're going to do in 2021 is we're just going to tackle book one of the Psalms, which is Psalm chapter one through Psalm 41. And we're going to study those Psalms together. So we'll be kicking that off at the start of the new year. Speaking of Psalms, why don't we now take a look at Psalm 50, which was our reading for today. If you look at verse 14, you'll notice there that there's a reference to Thanksgiving Then if you look at verse 23, the last verse in the psalm, you'll notice again, there's a reference to thanksgiving. And so we're going to zero in on those two verses for the bulk of the teaching today. But first, we should consider the context that these verses find themselves in. This psalm was written as one integrated idea, one complete thought, this Psalm chapter 50. And so we want to kind of find out what is the whole psalm about, because that's going to help us to understand what verse 14 and verse 23 are really getting at. So let me try to set the context for us and spend a couple of minutes doing that. And then again, we'll dive in on verse 14 and verse 23. So what is the context of this psalm? The context is this, God is gathering his people together for judgment. He's not gathering non-Christians together. He's gathering his people together for judgment. We see that in verse 4. We read, He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And then down in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. God is gathering his people together for judgment. He's going to testify against them. So God's got some issues with his people and he's going to deal with them in this psalm. Now, the heavens and the rest of the earth are all called together to kind of be witnesses at the trial. Look at verse 1. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth 
So he's summoning the earth together. And then down in verse four, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So you can kind of envision this kind of courtroom type setting. God's people are the ones that are on trial and the heavens and the heavenly beings and the rest of the earth are all sort of the witnesses to this trial between the Lord and his people. Now, I understand that we're not off to the best start here this morning because this doesn't sound like a very cheery Thanksgiving message that's going to get us all smiling. We're talking about judgment in the house of the Lord. But don't worry, this psalm gets really, really good. You'll see, just give us a minute here. And here's the first key that helps us to understand what's going on in this psalm. This is a significant key. The the judgment that God is trying to bring to his people in Psalm chapter 50 is not a judgment that brings punishment. It's a judgment that produces correction. So God is not gathering his people together to, to cast final judgment on them and punish them. He's gathering them together to bring judgment to them and expose to them the error of their ways so that they can repent and get back on track. That's what's going on in this psalm. God is trying to get his people to the place where thanksgiving abounds in their hearts. So stay with me. This will be about thanksgiving. Now in Psalm 50, there are two different groups who need some correction among God's people. And we're going to look at them briefly. The first group we can call the mindlessly religious, the mindlessly religious. What do I mean by that? Well, the mindlessly religious are those people who are religious, but they just go through the motions. They're the kinds of people who sort of look at religion and they say, well, what boxes do I need to check? These are probably the people who have really extensive to-do lists that they enjoy checking everything off, right? That kind of comes natural to them. It's like they kind of look at the Lord, they look at God, they look at church, they look at religion and they say, well, what are the things that I just have to do? What what are the boxes that I need to check? Put it differently, uh, this is the person who actually values ritual over relationship. So I just, again, kind of need to just go through the motions just pay my religious dues. And once I've done that, then God's kind of out of my hair and I can do what I want to do. Here's the person described in verse eight. God says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. So notice they're sacrificing. He's saying, it's not about that. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So God's like, look, it's not that you're not doing the religious things. You're continually offering sacrifices Before me, and then in verse 9, though, he says, But I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. So, in this Old Testament context here, this is the person who offers all the right sacrifices. This is the person who is kind of crossing their T's and dotting their I's of, of the laws of the Old Testament. This is a person who probably says their prayers. This is a person who recites their scriptures. This is a person who pays their tithes in the temple, that tenth of their income. This person is doing all of these sorts of things. But the question is, were they doing it because they loved the Lord? Were they doing it because they desired to draw near to the Lord and have intimacy with him? The answer is no. I mean, look here at at, at the, the way that these people viewed God. Look at the perspective that they had on the Lord. They viewed God as being needy, as being 
somehow dependent on us as his creatures. They viewed God as this being who sort of needed to be appeased so that he wouldn't be moody. Right? Let me just kind of check the boxes and do the right thing so that God will get out of my hair and then I can go do the things that I want to do. So God says in verse 13, quite rhetorically, he says, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God's saying like, do you think that this is about me? The sacrifices are because I have some need? Like as if I'm like you and I'm hungry and these couple of bulls that you offer to me or these goats that you offer to me are are my sustenance, that this is the food that's going to sustain me? Friends, listen, these sacrifices in the Old Testament were never for God's sake. They were for our sake. They were for his people's sake. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were to show the people of God that they were in desperate need of a sacrifice that God appointed so that they could be forgiven for their sins. So the sacrifices weren't because God needed something, again, as if he was somehow hungry or something. The sacrifices were for our sake to teach us that we need salvation from the Lord. And so these people, these mindlessly religious people, they looked great on the outside. They were doing all that was expected of them. But the problem was that their hearts were far from God. To update it into our context, this is the person who probably goes to church every single week. This is the person who prays before all their meals. This is the person who gives a portion of their income to the church and to ministry. This is the person who reads their Bible, just kind of check, check, check. They can check all the little Christian boxes. We're doing all of these things. But if we're just doing these things and just going through the motions and thinking that that's what God wants, family, we are totally wrong. Like the church at Ephesus, these folks have forgotten their first love. Do you remember in the book of Revelation, Jesus summons his churches and with the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter two, Jesus says all of these wonderful things about all the good works that they're doing, all the right stuff that they're doing. But of course, the really amazing rebuke comes in Revelation two, four, where we read that they had forgotten their first love. They were doing many right things, but their heart was far from the Lord. Warren Wiersbe, the famous preacher and Bible commentator said this, about Psalm 50, he said, God wanted their hearts before he wanted their sacrifices. Hasn't that always been the way? God is not about ritual for the sake of ritual. God is about establishing a relationship with his people where we experience his love and then express our love in response. In Mark chapter 12, this is such a cool passage. There's a scribe, which would be kind of like a lawyer, and, and this scribe comes to Jesus and he asks him, master or rabbi teacher, what is the great commandment? What's the greatest one? And of course, Jesus tells him that it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 33 of Mark 12, the scribe says this. He says, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The scribe says to love God with all of your being is much more 
then all of the offerings and all of the sacrifices. Now, Jesus as a Jew doesn't go, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. It's about all the sacrifices. That's what it's about. Jesus says in verse 34, uh, or let me just read the verse. And when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So Jesus there is helping to reorient the perspective of the Jews that, again, at the end of the day, it's not just about doing the right thing or going through these religious motions. God is after our hearts. Now, the second group here that needs to be corrected, we can call the morally corrupt. The morally corrupt. Now, this is a different person than the mindlessly religious. The morally corrupt person is the blatant hypocrite. This is the person who puts on the religious front, but is actually living comfortably in their sin. This is the person who, when they're away from their church friends or their church family, they live a double life. And they're just comfortable living in sin. Verse 17 tells us this person discards God's word. So as we're sitting here studying it, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're eagerly listening right now saying, Lord, where do I need to be corrected this morning? What do I need to change? How can I glorify you? But this person doesn't receive God's word like that. This person's sitting in the congregation this morning going, when is this going to be over? They're sitting in the congregation this morning and they're just thinking about, again, going through these motions so they can just get back to the things that really matter to them. We see in verse 18 that this person is engaging in sinful behavior and encouraging it. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. Then look at verses 19 and 20. He's going to talk about sins of the tongue here. In these verses, we read this. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. In these verses, we see that God is calling this person out and, and pointing out that this person has broken commandments 7, 8, and 9. They just live in disobedience to the commandments of the Lord. Now, many people play the religion game, but they have no desire to honestly obey the Lord and draw near to him and honor him with the lies that they've given him. For some, you go to church and go through the motions so that your parents won't catch on to your double life. For others, you go through the motions religiously and you put on a religious front so you can get your spouse off your back. For others, you do it because you just want to look good and moral and upright among your peers. And finally, for others, they do it because they think that getting a little bit of religion will help offset all of the sinful or wrong things that they do in their life. That somehow God's going to grade on the curve and maybe I can just add up some good deeds every week and that'll undo the bad things that I've done. Friends, that's not the way that the gospel works. That's not how salvation comes. And so God sees this hypocrisy and in verse 21, look at what God says. He says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. What's God saying there? God is saying that when you were sitting there being a hypocrite, when you were living in sin and disregarding my word, I stayed silent. But instead of interpreting God's silence and God not stepping in and judging them 
as God's patience and responding to that, they interpreted that as, well, God must be like us or God's okay with this. God doesn't have a problem with the way that I'm living and God's saying, okay, you've been thinking that, that's not true. Let me set the record straight. And so he confronts this person here in verse 21. This person is wrongly assuming that God is okay with what they're doing, not knowing that God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance. Many of you know 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is slow, is not slow rather to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come and brought judgment on the earth yet? Because Jesus is patient and he's long-suffering and he's giving more and more people time to come to their senses and repent and receive forgiveness and eternal life. And so God wants to help these people who are playing the hypocrite to understand, do not misinterpret my patience with my approval. That's not what's going on. And now God is warning them because he wants them to repent and get back on the right track. And so he's going to confront both of these false worshipers, the mindlessly religious and the morally corrupt. And here's what the correction is. Look at verse 14. God says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Then drop down to verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Family, you know what God is interested in? God is interested in gratitude and trust. Gratitude and trust. We're going to take those each in order and think about them a little bit. What is God interested in? He's not interested in us just showing up and going through the motions. God is interested in a heart that is overflowing with gratitude or thanksgiving. Again, in verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. See, these Jews in their mind, they thought, no, 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 the sacrifice God wants, he wants me to slaughter animals. And God's like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding what that's about. What I want, the sacrifice I want is gratitude and thanksgiving. In verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. So God wants gratitude or thanksgiving. And here's the reason why. Because gratitude comes not from a person who gives, but from a person who receives. Gratitude comes not from a person who gives, but from a person who receives. God does not need to receive anything from us. We're the receivers. Remember, that was the problem. God's like, I I don't need a couple of animals, right? God is not in need of anything. God lacks nothing. He says in this psalm, you think that I need a couple of heads of cattle or a few goats? He says, no, 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 no. Hey, newsflash, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Every beast of the forest is mine, not yours. That's what the Lord's saying. I need nothing. So I'm not looking at you as my people and saying, well, 
can you buy me something nice? Can you bring me an animal because I can't find one on my own? That's not the Lord. The Lord needs nothing from us. God doesn't want us to give him anything. He wants us to receive from him everything. And there's a huge difference there. This is what pleases the Lord. When we come to him and we recognize that out of his fullness he gives and out of our emptiness we receive. When you get to that place in your life, the Lord's going, okay, that's what's pleasing to me. You're understanding it. You get me for who I am. I am the one who's in control of everything. I'm omnipotent. I have unlimited resources and power. I don't need anything from you, but I love you and I graciously give. When you, step, when you come to a place in your life where you get that and you say, well then, all I can do is receive, God goes, exactly. Exactly, and that's all I want you to do. Receive the gifts that I give you. Receive the grace that I offer you. So here's how it works. Again, out of his fullness, he gives. Out of our emptiness, we receive. And that's why we're told to offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because again, thanksgiving, let me put it this way. Thanksgiving is the language of the undeserving. Thanksgiving is the language of the undeserving. It's the language of the person who has received. Gratitude acknowledges that what a person did for you was not deserved. That's why I think about it like this. When you get your, pay tra- your paycheck from your employer, you don't text your boss and say thank you. Right? I mean, you don't, it's not like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for giving me my paycheck. Well, there's a reason why you don't weekly text your boss and say, thank you for your paycheck. It's because the paycheck is actually something you did deserve. It's something you earned. You went and put in the hours. That's the agreement. They owe you that money. But what's so funny is if your boss was to bless you with a gift, even like a $50 Starbucks gift card out of the blue, which is way smaller than your paycheck, you would probably feel like, you know, I'm going to say thank you to my boss. I will shoot them a text or when I see them, I'll say, hey, thank you so much for giving me that gift gift card. What's going on there? What's at work there? Again, thanksgiving is the language of the undeserving. The gift card was something you didn't earn. It was something that you didn't deserve. It wasn't owed to you. And that prompts a response of gratitude and thanksgiving. Gratitude is an attitude that flows out of an acknowledgement that I have received something I wasn't entitled to. No one owed it to me. It didn't have to be this way. There's a show that's on Netflix, I think has a season of it, but Hulu uh, has a show called Alone that I'm like really addicted to right now, my wife and I. Uh, And it's a show, has anybody seen Alone? I see some enthusiastic hands up and 80% of them come from my own family. Um, Alone. So it's this show where they take 10 kind of survivalists and they drop them off in incredibly remote locations and they get to bring 10 survival items that they choose and they get dropped off and whoever survives the longest wins a half a million dollars. You have nobody there to help you. You're all alone and they give you camera equipment and you have to video yourself as you're surviving out there. And uh, the last two seasons have been in the Arctic. They just drop them off in an Arctic winter and they have to build a shelter, find food, survive, just do it all by themselves. And it is awesome. It is such a cool show to watch the incredible survival skills of some of these people. 
But I bring this up because there's something really profound that happens. For these people who are out there surviving on this show, they recognize that nature doesn't owe them anything. So like they'll go out and they'll put their pole in the water for 10 consecutive days. And if they don't get any food, they're not going, I was supposed to have food here. Or if they set a trap for 10 consecutive days and they don't catch a rabbit or any other food, they recognize that nature doesn't owe them anything. And so what's amazing is that when they finally do get food, sometimes these contestants actually start breaking down, weeping with gratitude. And they'll just say, thank you, thank you. Some of them are thanking God. Some of them, maybe because they don't believe God, are actually even thanking the animal. They'll have like a dead rabbit or a fish and they're kissing the animal and saying, thank you so much. Thank you for your life. What's going on there? What's going on there is an involuntary response inside the human heart called gratitude when they recognize that they have received something that wasn't owed to them that they did not deserve. It could have went a different way. They did not deserve that they were going to get the animal. Think about the first Thanksgiving, hundreds of years ago, when the pilgrims and the Native Americans celebrated that first Thanksgiving together. The pilgrims were offering Thanksgiving to God because they recognized that God didn't owe them a safe journey across the Atlantic Ocean in the Mayflower, nor did God owe them survival through that first winter. In fact, many of the pilgrims didn't survive that first winter. Also, they were expressing gratitude to the Native Americans because they recognized that the Native Americans did not have to help them understand how to survive in New England. And so they were offering thanksgiving because they had received things from the hand of God and from the Indians that they did not deserve. Family, as it relates to God, Thanksgiving or gratitude is that sacrifice that is pleasing to him because it's the sacrifice that is appropriate before him. We have received something from God that we did not deserve. We, like the Israelites of old, have many times in our lives demonstrated that our hearts were far from God. We've demonstrated to God that We were willing to break his law through wrong actions or wrong attitudes in our heart. We don't deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve God's kindness. And yet he freely gives it. So the first thing that God is saying is, you want to know what I'm looking for? Thanksgiving, gratitude. And the second thing is trust. In verse 15, he says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now, this is awesome. This is absolutely amazing. Stop and think about this. To a bunch of people who are disobeying God and dismissing God, whose hearts are far from God, he invites them to call upon him in the day of trouble, and he promises that he'll deliver them. I mean, do you see how patient God is? Do you see how gracious God is, how merciful God is? These people, again, are disobeying God and dismissing God. And he's saying, listen, if you in your day of trouble will call upon me, he doesn't say, I'll think about delivering you. I'll consider it. 
He says, I will do it. He pledges himself to their deliverance if they will just simply call upon him, trust in him to save them. Now, what did God's people need deliverance from? This is an important question. What do God's people today need deliverance from? What do all people need deliverance from? Sin and death. Yeah, you can shout at me an answer if you want, or we can just have that moment of silence so we can sit and think about it. What do we need deliverance from? The answer is this. People need deliverance from the wrath of God. We don't first and foremost need deliverance from a bad relationship. We don't need deliverance from poverty. We don't need deliverance from our temporal circumstances. The thing that we need most is we need deliverance from the wrath of God. Look at verse 22. God says this, and this is written to the morally corrupt person. He says, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. That's heavy. So God's saying, call on me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you. And now he's saying, if you don't do it, you know what you need deliverance from? You need deliverance from me because I will tear you apart and there will be nobody who can deliver you from me. This is wrath language. This is what we still need deliverance from today. This is not just Old Testament. Here's Romans chapter two, verses five through eight. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Friends, that's, that's New Testament. That for the person who says, forget God, I'm going to serve myself. For the person whose heart is impenitent, meaning you don't want to repent and turn to the Lord as your savior, God says you are storing up for yourself wrath. This is what we need deliverance from. And so the million dollar question is, how do we get it? How can people be delivered from the wrath of God? And the answer is by trusting in him, by calling on him. Further in Romans, here's chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No qualification, no special people group. Everyone, anyone, if you can hear my voice, if you call on the name of the Lord and put your trust in him, you will be saved. God will deliver you. This is amazing. I mean, isn't this awesome? God's response to a bunch of people who are, do, who are doing it all wrong is not, hey, get your act together. That's not what he says. Hey, start doing the right stuff. Hey, work a little bit harder. If you do that, then maybe I'll deliver you. I mean, this is awesome. That's not what God says. He says, you're doing it all wrong. But that's okay. Call on me and I will deliver you. Trust in me, I will save you, and you will no longer experience 
my wrath. Incredible. But the gospel is even bigger than that. Not only does God promise to save us from the penalty of our sins at the final judgment, where we don't receive his wrath, but God promises to deliver us from the power of our sins even as we live this new life in relationship with him. And so Asaph, the worship leader of Israel, the author of this psalm, could talk of performing your vows to the Most High in verse 14 and ordering your way rightly in verse 23. There's not a contradiction here. Now he is talking about obedience. He is talking about living a certain type of life. But notice the order of this. It comes after our hearts begin to praise the Lord. It comes after we are trusting in the Lord to be the one who delivers us. Now we begin to live a life of obedience. Now we begin to walk in faith, trusting that his ways are better, delighting in his commands, choosing obedience, not to earn his favor, but because we trust that his ways are best. So this is what the Lord desires, gratitude and trust. And now I want you just to see one last thing before we close. It is through these things, through the gratitude and the faith of the people of God, that God himself is glorified. Look at verse 15 again carefully. I will deliver you, God promises. And then what happens? He says, and you shall glorify me. Look at verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. This is the way that we glorify God. It's, it's through us calling out to God to save us and then him actually doing it. As that happens, God is the one who is being glorified. How so? When I was probably seven or eight years old, I was swimming in a pool with my siblings and a few friends. And my sister was about three or four and she didn't know how to swim. But she had one of those floaties that you could sit in, you know, that completely wraps around the child and her arms are over the outside of it. I don't know, it's probably a big colorful unicorn or something. And she's in the shallow end on that floaty. And the rest of us kids who could all swim are swimming all over the pool. And my mom and the other adults had stepped inside the house for a minute. And all of a sudden I hear this like blood curdling scream from my mom from inside the house. And I turn and I look and my sister had come out of the floaty and was under the water. She had stepped up with her floaty onto one of the stairs that went into the pool. And then she just jumped in like that. And when she hit, you know, the pressure from the water shot the floaty up and she went down underneath it. And my mom screamed. And so I just reacted. I just, I was on the side of the pool and I just ran and jumped and dove in and I grabbed my sister and pulled her out and she didn't drown. And what was crazy and at the time as a little boy, quite annoying, was that for the next several months, my sister would just randomly come up to me and she'd sit down next to me and she would look at me and she'd say, brother, thank you for saving me. And I was kind of annoyed by it as, as the bigger brother, like, hey, it's, it's no big deal. It's what we do, you know, like just trying to play it off. And it was kind of annoying to me. But what was going on there was that my sister couldn't help but express gratitude because she realized that had I not dove in the pool, she would be dead. And she grasped that in her young mind. And it was so traumatizing that as she replayed that, all she could do was just come to me and just say, thank you, thank you, thank you 
for saving me from drowning. Family, this is how it works with the Lord. When we call on him in faith and then he saves us, we can't help but let thanksgiving flow from our lips. We can't help but express gratitude back to the Lord for what he's done. And this glorifies God because others begin to see us delighting in the Lord and they see us delighting in the salvation that he alone supplies. And what that does is it causes God to look attractive to other people. They see our joy, they see our gratitude, they see our thanksgiving. And this draws more and more people to the Lord. So what does the Lord want from his people? He wants gratitude. He wants faith. These are the things that please him. And so I want to give us three practical steps, and then we'll pray for cultivating and demonstrating gratitude. If this is what God wants, and if this week is Thanksgiving week, how can we cultivate and demonstrate gratitude? Very quickly, number one, rehearse the gospel every single day. Every single day, you need to be telling yourself once again the story of the gospel. Because just like my little sister, as that experience would replay in her mind fresh day after day, it would produce gratitude in her heart as we remind ourselves of the story of the gospel that God saved us even though we didn't deserve it. And that we will no longer experience God's wrath because Christ experienced it for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. You watch as gratitude becomes the posture of your heart. That you will be a thankful, thankful person. Number two, I'd encourage you to do this. Make Thanksgiving a part of every prayer time. I don't know what your prayer life is like. I don't know how you order your prayer life. If you pray in the morning, if you pray before bed, if you pray multiple times throughout the day. Make Thanksgiving a part of every prayer time. When you pray, stop and think about one, two, three things that you are thankful to God for in your life. And you'll watch as you express gratitude, you become more and more grateful. Finally, I would say this, give God credit for every good thing. Start making that a discipline in your life. Give God credit for every good thing. Not just the big things, every good thing. We're trying to cultivate this habit in our house. One of the things we've been doing is when I drive my boys to school in the morning, we have beautiful weather here. I mean, gosh, I feel like we say it every week at church to you or whoever's up here is like, oh, it's so beautiful out here. Aren't we lucky? We are lucky. We're blessed to live in Santa Barbara. And as I drive my kids to school and we have these crystal clear blue skies and I'm driving, I see the mountains. I say to my boys, isn't God so good to us? Look at the beautiful day the Lord made for us. And just simple practices like that of attributing the good things like your family, like your church, like your friends, like the beautiful place that we all call home, begins to cultivate a spirit of gratitude in you because you've become a person who starts looking at all the different things that God is doing in your life that you don't deserve. So make that a practice in your life and gratitude will flow. Well, family, I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving this week. I hope you use this as an opportunity, whether it's just your immediate family, a few other family members, maybe a couple of close friends, 
use this opportunity to worship, use this opportunity to express gratitude because God has done so very much for his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are a grateful people because we recognize once again this morning how truly good and gracious you have been toward us. We do not deserve anything except wrath from you, Lord. Because even though you have blessed us with life and you've blessed us with so many other gifts, each of us in our own ways, many times throughout our lives, have decided to turn our hearts away from the giver, away from you and turn them onto something else. And many times in our lives, we've failed to trust in you, this perfect and kind and generous God. And instead, we've thought that we know better and we've chosen to disobey your law and disobey your commands. What do we deserve for that level of pride and arrogance? Your word tells us what we deserve and it's wrath. And yet, Lord, because you are rich in mercy, you did not spare your own son, but you sent your son here to rescue us from our sins and to bear your wrath in our place on the cross where Jesus took our sin upon himself so that we would not have to pay for our sin ourselves. And so today in faith, we reach out to Christ. We trust in Christ Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And Jesus, we know that after dying on the cross, you rose again and you've ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. We know you're interceding for us now. And so we continue to trust in you. And Lord, we look forward to your soon return where you completely redeem us and bring us to yourself and where you set everything that is wrong in the world right. Oh, come quickly, Lord, please. We love you. We worship you today. And we worship you this week with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, God bless you. We're going to close with a song of gratitude and thanksgiving. So why don't we now stand to our feet and we'll close with a song of praise. Let's do that now.